I'm three generations in Christian ministry. My grandpa was saved out of a very wicked life after World War II, fell so much in love and loyalty with Jesus that he immediately started telling people about Him. He started preaching to his congregation that people should go everywhere and tell people about Jesus. My parents took him up on that. So I was raised outside of the country as the son of, of missionaries, and three generations, this is, what our, this is our family story. Because I've been in that ministry bubble for so long, I have delighted in asking people all about their jobs. Every kind of work imaginable, blue collar, white collar, slightly dirty white collar, light blue collar, everything in between. I love hearing about the different kind of work that people do, and I always ask them, what's the hardest part about your job? Ninety percent of them, regardless of what they do, whether they sit at a desk or get their hands dirty, Ninety percent of the respondents in all these years have been asking people about their life's work. They all say that the hardest power to their job is one single thing across all of those different vocations. Can you imagine what it is? People. They all say CEOs and construction workers alike, guys who've never had their hands dirty, and guys who have to scrub their fingernails after work every day all say the same thing. The worst part are the people. Management gripes about labor. Labor gripes about management. Teachers complain about students. Students certainly complain about teachers. It's just a common thing in life that what makes life hard are the humans. So, here's a hard question for us that we have to address with the Bible. As Christians, we are called to love and serve other people in the name of Jesus, but the question is, how in the world can we keep doing it when it's so hard to do so? How do you stay with it? Let's do a little survey, shall we? Whether you've ever been on a ministry staff and earned a single dollar from Christian ministry or not, if you've ever gone out and, with the best intentions in mind, served someone else as a Christian, even if they didn't know you were doing it, your motivation was to be a Christian, act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, serve them as a disciple of Jesus. If you've ever done that and been disappointed, mistreated, felt that you were unappreciated, or just flat out had a hard time with it, would you please stand up? You've served someone in the name of Jesus. Maybe they're in your family. Don't look at them right now, but you've served someone in the name of Jesus and been disappointed in the process. Take a look around. What's the ratio? You've got a few people who are too kind or introverted to stand up, but I bet if we probed, it's about 85%. Thank you. You may be seated. I bet if we probed, they would stand up too. It's hard to serve people. They're ungrateful unappreciative, inconsiderate. You tell them the truth and they hate you for it. Make stuff up and gossip about you. You see the need, you know the truth, you want to serve even when you do it kindly. It doesn't always go so well, so how in the world do we keep our heart in that task and keep going? 
I know it's hard because speaking only of pastors, and these are people who have felt their public testimony is, God called me to do this. If I didn't serve people full-time, vocationally, whether they're paid or not, if I didn't give my life to pastoring and shepherding other people, I would be disobedient to the will of God. People like that, pastors, have this attrition rate. Ninety percent of people who serve as pastors will not retire as pastors. Ninety percent quit. Now, they might go teach in a Bible college or a seminary, but I'm talking about the pastorate, the life of a local church, big and small, across all Christian denominations. The attrition rate is 90%. That tells me that serving others in the name of Jesus and even in His strength is hard. It's not always well received. It never stops because people never stop. People have needs and questions and hurts and surprises and disappointments all the time. How can we keep serving others when it's so hard to do so? You won't find a better teacher and a better example aside from Jesus Himself than the Apostle Paul. You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this letter in 2 Corinthians, Paul sort of laid out his suffering resume. He told this difficult, ungrateful church that was plagued by things like gross sexual immorality that would have been scandalous even to non-believers, to the point that one man in the church apparently was sleeping with his stepmother and the church, rather than be horrified and correct him, was actually sort of celebrating him, saying, isn't it great that we have this freedom in Christ? They were a divisive bunch. They were fanboys regarding different apostles and preachers, and they would say things like, I'm one of Paul's guys. Oh, really? I'm with Apollos. And probably the most pious group among them said, we just love Jesus. There's always that guy, right? That's what we should be doing, but you know the tone of voice. People will Jesus juke you sometimes. They were suing each other. They were showing up drunk to church services, and when they celebrated the communion, they were already drunk, and apparently some of the wealthier members of the congregation were gorging themselves at their shared meals, bringing, especially in that culture, real embarrassment to the poor people in the congregation who couldn't contribute, didn't have enough to eat. And they were a mess. They were the kind of church that makes pastors quit. They're the kind of congregation that makes the 90%. How in the world did Paul keep serving them? He wrote them these two letters and apparently two others that aren't part of Scripture. He loved them. You can hear his brokenheartedness as he dealt with them. And in this difficult letter, he opened up his heart and told them as an example and a reminder everything that it had cost him to keep serving others in the difficulty. Later in 2 Corinthians, he says that five different times he received 39 lashes from his fellow Jews. Three times, he says, he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, in other words, left for dead. It it was meant to be an execution. They just didn't succeed. He says that on three separate occasions, he was shipwrecked and once spent a day and night adrift. Now, think about what I just told you. He was shipwrecked three times. 
I don't know if you've thought about this, shipwrecks are not meant to happen. They're fairly extraordinary events. We make movies about shipwrecks. And this is the ancient world, but they didn't mean to go wreck the ship in the first century either. What, Paul, what might Paul have been thinking the third time he realized he was going in the water? I'm thinking if it's modern times, he might say something like this. Really? Three times? He was betrayed by his fellow Jews, and he was betrayed and persecuted by Gentiles. After that long list, he says, and besides all this, I have the daily anxiety of the churches. In other words, it's not that I have all these physical problems and bear on my body the scars of defensive wounds that I've suffered when they tried to kill me. It's not that his mass, his back was a mass of scars and hard flesh that had barely healed over probably before he received another beating. It's not only that alone. He says, every day I feel emotional pressure. I feel anxiety and stress because I wonder how it's going with all of these Christians that have popped up in these hard places. I wonder how the churches are doing. I wonder if their leaders are serving them well. I wonder if they're truthful men who are telling them the truth from God's book. Paul had every reason and he didn't. And 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6, tells us why. It's written as an example to us to remind us and to teach us. This is what Paul wrote regarding this service, regarding his ministry, from which he refused to quit. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, what's he say? We do not lose heart. That verse is the point. Paul says, in all of this service, even if it costs me a beating, even if I'm left for dead beneath a pile of stones, even if my family betrays me and people who used to admire me think I'm out of my mind and corrupt and crazy and evil and destroying my nation, even if the Gentiles don't understand me and throw me illegally in jail, even if I'm beaten half to death, all of that service I understand as a mercy from God. If you don't catch anything else I say today, understand this. As we think about what our church is to do next, not only in a third worship service, but in all the things that we're called to do for the rest of this year, because we've got good things coming up. In October, we're going to be hosting a conference that combats human trafficking with an extraordinary woman who was given the fourth quarter of her life in retirement, is working harder than she probably ever has to rescue young women, young children, boys and girls from sex slavery. In September, we're going to revive our group life, and we're going to go, God willing, through the Gospel of Luke together. We're going to teach kids, and we're going to see students this year, as we have for the last few weeks, move from death into life, and that's going to take all kinds of different snapshots. There's going to be all kinds of different examples along the way. And the people who are going to make that happen, namely, the people who attend this church, who call this their little family of faith, in all of that are going to be given service from God. We're going to be given ministry, the opportunity to speak and to love and to serve people in the name of Jesus. And Paul says, when ministry is received, it is a mercy from God. It's a mercy. 
Please understand that. That's the point of this passage. We can keep serving others when it's hard to do so, when we see ministry as a mercy received, not as a duty imposed. It makes all the difference. Years ago, I forgot this, because pastors forget this. Many times, that's why we resign. And I grumbled to my wife. It's embarrassing to admit this to you, but I grumbled to my wife, and I said, well, I I can't do that with you because I have to preach on Sunday. And she, a pastor's kid, smiled sweetly and said, Bruce, you don't have to. You get to. See the difference? Huge. Paul says, when I received a ministry from the Lord Jesus, when He saved me and told me what He wanted my life to count for before I went to heaven, when He gave me service to do, and this is true of every Christian, none of us here are apostles and ever will be. But we're all called to be disciples who make disciples. That's the ordinary life of a Christian. We are disciples. In other words, we're followers of Jesus who teach other people in obedience to Him to follow Jesus with us. Disciple-making disciples. And when we do that, that's ministry, and it's hard because it won't always be well understood. It won't be received. Sometimes the people who need you most in the Spirit and in the power of Jesus are the last to know it and the last to thank you for it. That's just life. And it's not just ordinary life, as I'm going to show you, it's far worse, it's far more intense when you take ministry in the name of Jesus. But in all of that, we can keep our heads together and our hearts encouraged when we see that ministry as a mercy that we've received from God rather than a duty imposed by God. We have to anyway. He told us to. We must be obedient to Him. But the difference of seeing it as an obligation to carry out with our teeth gritted and a mercy received from a God who loves us makes all the difference in the world. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, that's the key. We do not lose heart. Then he explains what that attitude means, what it means when you see ministry as a mercy. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What did Paul mean by that complicated sentence? He says, we have turned our back. We've fled from anything that is disgraceful or underhanded. We're not deceitful. We don't practice cunning, or we, and we don't tamper with God's Word. That word in Greek literally means, refers to a practice that wine merchants had of pouring a little water in the wine they were selling so that the profit margin would be better. Think about that for a second. There were people in Paul's day that accused him of watering down the gospel. Have you heard the gospel watered down before? Me too. Hopefully you haven't heard it here. That would be one of our chief commitments to not water down, to not tamper with the Word of God, but it's done all the time. And some people in Paul's day said that's what he's about. He's got an easy believism gospel. In other words, every day Paul went out, he faced criticism from somebody. 
Some people apparently were accusing him of watering down. There were others that said the reason he's in prison and catching these beatings is God's trying to get him to stop. He's under the judgment of God. If he were really a servant of God, he wouldn't get half killed everywhere he goes. They wouldn't chase him out of town everywhere he preaches his own twisted opinion if God really loved him and God had really called him to that. In other words, Paul couldn't please anybody. Some people accused him of making up his own message for his own underhanded, self-serving ways. Some people saw his success, the good things, the power that was coming along with Paul's ministry as evidence that he had twisted the Scriptures, and that's why people wanted to listen. When people didn't want to listen and they half killed him, he said, see, that's God's judgment on him. He couldn't win. That's why Paul said elsewhere he had given up entirely on trying to please men. All he wanted to do was please Jesus. When people see ministry as a mercy received, what that means is that we serve for the good of others, not for our own. That's a matter of integrity. When we, as the local church, as just one body of Christ on this corner in Huntington Beach, invite people in the body of Christ to recognize where God has placed them in the body and to step forward and provide what only they can as part of His body, we always do that for the good of others, not for our own. We're not seeking our best interest. We're not seeking to make life easier for ourselves. Paul says what we do is have nothing to do with anything that is graceful, disgraceful, underhanded. We don't practice cunning. We don't tamper with God's Word. On the contrary, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What Paul means is, I'm not going to defend myself point by point. I'm just going to live an open, honest, truthful, totally out in the open life and let everyone, friends and enemies, examine me and see if their conscience can recognize that I'm doing all of this in the sight of God. He's the one I answer to. That's not all. Paul goes on to say in verse 3 and 4, something that is really important for you to understand and accept if you're going to join ministry. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul says, everywhere we go, we tell good news. That's what gospel means. And there are people who can't see it. That's what he means in verse 3 when he says, the gospel is veiled. That good news is being proclaimed, that light is shining, but not everybody can see it. It is veiled to some people who are perishing, who are spiritually dying. Here's what's happening, Paul says. In their case, the God of this world, that's a reference to Satan. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, a dense sentence. Here's what it means. Paul is saying that when Jesus stepped into human history, when God became a man, the very person, the very identity of God was on earth. And everywhere Jesus went, 
that good news that God had kept all of His promises and had finally come in the flesh to save the world, that light was shining everywhere. That good news was being broadcast to everyone who would listen, but not everyone did. Paul uses a word picture to say, even though the light was shining, not everybody could see. Why? Let's study the Bible together. Why doesn't everybody realize this? Why doesn't everybody love Jesus? We're just studying the Bible together. What's it say? Because they've been blinded. The God of this world has blinded them. The light is shining. It makes no difference to them because they've been blinded. I don't have time to delve into the doctrine of Satan, but remember, when Jesus was tempted, Satan offered him the kingdoms of this world, and Jesus refused that temptation and spoke the truth of God in that situation, but he didn't withstand Satan by saying, you have no right to do that. In some sense that I can't completely grasp, it was a legitimate offer because the power of the prince of the air, as Paul calls Satan elsewhere, in other words, devilish thinking that is separated from Christ, that is literally anti-Christ, that is opposed to everything that Jesus is, that everything that Jesus does and thinks and wants, it permeates our world. It keeps people from seeing the work of God historically manifested in the world and proclaimed everywhere in the world. If you've ever thought that it seems like the world is upside down and darkness is light and life is death and everything's backwards, Paul here is telling you 2,000 years ago why that is so. It's not a new phenomenon. It has to do with spiritual blindness. And what that means, friends, is when we receive ministry as a mercy from God, what that means is we accept this simple fact that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And that is the reality. The reality is that it's not a matter of tactics and good planning. It's not a matter of management and cleverness and human intelligence. When Christians follow the voice of their Savior into a world that is dying without Him, to serve Him, to speak truth, to show love in the name of Jesus, when you decide to do that, whether it's in a very small thing or a very big public ministry that everybody can see and many people admire, whether your role is big or small, when you do that, you're joining battle. And it won't be easy. And there will be casualties. And there will be difficulty. It's a very small and simple example, but anybody who's ever played a difficult sport has probably seen this in the life, usually, of freshmen. When I was playing football, I played against a kid who was a phenomenal athlete, and unfortunately, he was the guy I had to block every play when we trained together. Tremendous athlete. He was the kid we all wanted to grow up to be. He was older, bigger, better, stronger, faster, better looking, just the whole, he was the whole thing. And little weak me had to block him. And one time he, apparently bored from trampling me in our scrimmage, decided rather than rush past me or around me, he decided to drop back about 10 yards and just, if I can use a little football team, football term, just read. And the play we were running was a deep pitch to another friend of mine. Pitch, so the quarterback takes the ball, turns, and throws the ball backward to a running back. Well, again, he had decided to run straight back rather than run over the top of me, which I appreciated, and I didn't chase him because I couldn't catch him. And 
I just kind of watched what happened next, and what happened next was terrible. My other friend caught that pitch and started running, and that's when Ruben Tarango decided to turn himself into a human missile. And I watched. I didn't know he could run that fast. I didn't know he could be that mean. The other kid didn't know it either because this is a scrimmage. It's all, we're all on the same team. We're all wearing the same uniform. We're just practicing. He decided to signal surrender by doing the worst thing a kid running with the ball can do. He decided to stop and stand up. Well, he didn't know that my friend Ruben didn't have a human conscience when he stepped onto the football field. So rather than slow down and hug him, he just went right through him. And I heard behind me this terrible crash. If you've ever seen a minor traffic collision, that's kind of what it sounded like. Sorry to be crude. When I got to the scene of the accident, because I thought I've just caused a human death, you know, there's a man dead behind me and it's all my fault, he had literally knocked the snot out of the other kid, okay? I didn't know that was possible until that day. And when the other kid, his name was Gil, when he woke up, which took a little while, he got up, took his helmet off, went into the locker room, and we never saw him anywhere near the field again. Why am I telling you that story? Because sometimes when you play a tough sport like football, you don't understand how hard it's going to be. And I've told kids who are going to start playing, you'll know if you want to keep playing after you get hit hard. When you get hit hard, then you're going to have a decision to make whether that was a fun experience and you're done with that or whether you actually want to play. It is very much the same, but with much higher stakes when you step forward to serve people in the name of Jesus. What is true on this battlefield is that the world around you is already blind. The light of the gospel is now shining into the darkness, and the light will not be overcome by the darkness, but there will, people, there will be people who have been blinded who will choose to remain blind and will not respond to your best efforts because you're engaged in battle. We're at a really interesting point in the life of our church. When I came here 11 years ago, there were many Sundays. Our auditorium looked a lot different then. There weren't very many people seated out there. The floor was cracked. The tiles were coming up. Part of my Sunday morning routine was to walk through the auditorium and pick up tiles that had finally given way and were loose on the floor. People were falling through the chairs sometimes while I preached. It's a little distracting. You're reading the Bible, you hear crash, ah, and somebody's legs are sticking up out of the chair. <laughs> and there were many Sundays when even in the middle of teaching you the Bible, I asked myself, I wonder if we'll make it. Or I wonder if in about six more months it'll become evident that I was not the guy that God wanted to have any part of this, or that I've misunderstood him, or we just collectively can't do it, and I'll have to leave. That was a continual question. We're not there anymore. God has blessed. You have served. You have loved. You have given. 
Many of you extend yourselves in a way that no one could pay you to do, and you do it for free. It's wonderful. The interesting season that we have in our church life is now, it's apparent, by growth and by blessing, that the next reasonable, spiritual, God-directed step would be to take one more risk and add another service. And we're going to need many more people in the fight that are currently in it. When you do that, I'm not pumping sunshine. You're going to have to understand, if you decide to serve in something that seems small but is vitally important, what sorts of things? This auditorium is cleaned and organized every single week. Every week, hundreds of bulletins are stuffed. Every week, children, nursery, parking, cleaning, organizing, calling people, welcoming. There's all kinds of things. I literally don't want to bore you with the logistics, with all of the different things that it takes. And that's just on Sunday to say nothing of the work of the church seven days a week because the building may close, but the work is always going on. And if you join us in that, it's going to be spiritual battle. And I can't undersell that to you and tell you that it's going to be the greatest thing ever and it's always going to be easy because it is going to be great, but it's also going to be difficult. In the interesting season we find ourselves in is trusting Jesus and begging Him as the head of the body to motivate every member of the body, every person that is committed to this church, to have personal conversation with Him and say, okay, I get it, you're blessing. We're well past the stage of potential death. We're in a season of health. What do you want me to do? And if every one of you who actually knows and follows Jesus in the ministry of this church will do that, we'll have everyone we need. But we'll need every one of you. In every effective team, there are no extra members. When fire crews go to fight fire, they don't take a guy along whose job it is to sit in the truck and listen to his iPod. If you go to those places, everyone has a job to do. There will some that will be very far from the disaster. And they won't actually be anywhere near the danger, but they have a vital role far from the fire. Others will be right in the middle of it, sometimes engulfed by it at risk of their own lives. But everyone has something to do. So it is with the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says Jesus is the head of the body and He places the members where He pleases. So my simple invitation to you, and I'm nearly done, is to understand that when Jesus calls you to serve Him, that invitation is not only a summons, it's not only a call to duty, it is first and foremost a great mercy that is extended to you by God. He's treating you not as a soldier but as a son and daughter. He's inviting you to follow His redemptive work until Jesus comes back and makes everything new and everything better. In that short, brief time, we have work that is eternally important to do. And the people who clean the auditorium and fill the bulletins will be just as significant in the sight of Jesus as the people like me who had the privilege of opening the Bible in front of everybody and explaining it. Because there's nothing special about this. This is what Jesus called and asked me to do. It is a mercy from Him to me. He has mercy for you as well. But His mercy, if you're 
following Him with His whole heart is not only sitting and receiving and growing, it's working it out in the hard spiritual battle of taking His love and His light to people who won't always understand it, who people who will reject you. So when we did that little thing a little bit earlier, and a lot of you said, yes, I'm disappointed, I've been disappointed in ministry, it's a mercy that you're still here that you haven't given up, that you haven't lost heart. Finally, Paul says in these last two verses, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, in other words, because God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's Genesis 1, that moment of creation has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says the same God who spoke the world and spoke light into existence in a dark world, that same God spoke light again when He helped us see who God is when we met Jesus. We saw Jesus, who is the very image of God, who stepped into human history as the Son of God, who God sent to keep all of God's promises. Paul said, God opened our eyes. He removed our blindness. We saw Jesus for who He is, God in the flesh, and the very light of the glory of God lit our hearts up. And Paul says, because that's true, in verse 5, we're proclaiming two things. Let's study the Bible for one more minute. Paul says, we have a proclamation but we're not proclaiming one thing, we're proclaiming two things. What's the first? What we proclaim is not ourselves, but what? Jesus Christ as Lord. Our message is not us. We're not the point. We're not the message. The point is that Jesus is Lord. And then he says, but that's not all we proclaim. We also proclaim ourselves as, what's it say? Your servants for Jesus' sake. Pronouns matter, folks. Paul didn't say, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as His servants. Did you notice that? He said something much, much tougher. What did he say? We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. Well, that stinks. Because this is the incestuous, divisive, drunken at the Lord's Supper bunch, remember? These are the people who are listening to people who are saying Paul's a false apostle. Paul says, I am so secure and grateful that God let His light shine in my heart, and when I saw Jesus, I saw God Himself. And I understand that was a creative miracle. God brought, Paul explains this other places, He brought me from death into life. I now see the very face of God because I know who Jesus is, and because of that, here's all I'm saying. Jesus is Lord, and I am your servant. That's tough. See, everybody loves the concept of being a servant until they're treated like a servant. That's much harder. I know this is true because last week I was on Beach Boulevard, which now resembles the 405 at rush hour. And there was a guy behaving like, well, like a fool in biblical terminology, okay? He was driving foolishly. And without the benefit of a signal, it was clear that he wanted in. So I let him in. And I even did this, <laughs> right? Be my guest. And we made eye contact. 
and he cut me righteously off, and I felt good about it until about two seconds later because he failed to do something. You know what he failed to do? He didn't give me one of these. And I watched, and I'm like, come on, bro, acknowledge. That was really cool. No acknowledging wave. And I was ticked. And then I thought to myself, you know why you're laughing? Because you've done it too, and you know exactly what I was expecting. (laughs) And it made me think about this sermon that I was writing. And I thought to myself, you know, there was no real kindness. There was no real servanthood in letting him in. I wanted to do that to get the... (laughs) And when I didn't get it, made me mad. (laughs) Ministry is going to be like that. People who receive ministry as a mercy make Jesus the message, and we choose to make ourselves people's servants. That's a matter of your identity. It is absolutely, categorically, objectively true that Jesus Christ is Lord. The open question is whether people who have Jesus as Lord will be secure enough in Jesus to say, I love and serve Him, and because of that, I'm going to serve you. And when you're ungrateful, I'm going to realize that He was treated with ingratitude, and I should expect as a disciple no better than my Master received. And I will understand that because Jesus was rejected, I can expect rejection as well, and I won't take that to heart to quit. I'll understand that that's part of discipleship. And that joining the battle means that people are unloved and unloving, and I will love them as Jesus did whether they respond or not. And I'll I'll remember at all points that ministry is not primarily an obligation, a have to, it's a get to, it's a mercy. And I'll join that battle remembering that lives are at stake, keeping my integrity, doing it for Jesus and the good of other people, not to see my own name up in lights and not to receive gratitude from them. I'm going to remember that ministry is a mercy received, not a duty imposed. My prayer for this message and the outcome that comes from it is very simple, that every single one of you will talk to Jesus now and in the coming weeks as we prepare for this new season of ministry in group life in September, and God willing, God helping us, God mobilizing people, a third worship service coming later, that you'll talk to Jesus and just say, I'm available. I'm not trained, I'm not sure, but I'm available. If I could say one more thing, the greatest thing that we see discussing in the pastoral staff is that some of you simply, you've been saved by Jesus and gifted by Jesus, you just lack confidence. You understand that it's a spiritual battle and you're not quite yet ready to step forward in faith. Trust Jesus and see that ministry is a mercy. Let's pray. Lord, would you begin right now to speak to disciples? Move them, Lord, please. I ask you in your name, by your grace, by your power, to see themselves as you made them. I pray, God, that this offering that we receive would be one more grateful expression that we receive your blessing and we share it generously. I don't know how many people it will take. I don't know how you're going to move us around, reposition us. 
call new people into ministries that don't yet exist, strengthen other overworked, underserved ministries that desperately need the help and the support and the strength of a few more people. But help us now and in the coming days listen to you, talk to you, hear your voice calling us into the next step. Church, He can do this. He is able. He is sufficient. He is Lord. Let's just listen to Him. And if you haven't trusted Jesus as Savior, the point of this message was to encourage people who are already following Him. But if you haven't, understand the light of the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for your sins and rose to give you eternal life, that's a historical fact. Jesus is calling and reaching to save you now. If you don't have Him as Savior, my simple invitation is that you would turn from your own way, give up on yourself, turn your back on your sin and say, Jesus, please save me. You don't need the right words. You just need to place your personal trust in Him. He'll save you. If you do, would you let us know on the card that's in your bulletin before you leave? Put it in the basket or the box at the back of the auditorium. That's the light of the gospel shining in your heart. Together we can do everything that Jesus asked us to do. If only we'll understand that ministry is a mercy. Jesus, we give you this offering in our worship. Change hearts. Save people. Amen.